Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Time. The rest of you, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. As many of you know, we've gone on many mission trips to South Asia over the past 10 or 12 years. And I'll never forget the time that we went into a village. We go into these remote villages, these remote mountain villages. These are tribal people that worship all different types of gods, Hindu gods. And so we went into this village where they worshiped the mountain god, the god that made the mountains. And so as we go into this village, you always have to kind of get permission from the tribal chief before you can share. And so we got permission from the tribal chief if we could share a message about who the true creator of the mountain was. And so when I share the gospel, I always like to start with the law of God. The, the Ten Commandments, talking about sin and our need to understand the depth of our sin. And so I began talking through an interpreter, and our missionary was there. So there's the missionary and, he, and an interpreter and then me. I start talking about sin, start talking about the law. Start talking about the Ten Commandments. And all of a sudden, this lady gets really angry. She stands up. She takes this turban thing and wraps it around her head. And she starts shaking her fist at me. And she starts yelling and screaming. And I'm like, what in the world's going on here? And I'm like, through the translator, like, what's she saying? And she's saying something like this. I'm not a sinner. You have no right to come into this village and tell me I'm a sinner. We haven't broken any laws. We're not sinners. And at that moment, I looked at my missionary friend, and I said, what am I supposed to do here? And he's like, keep going, keep going. She needs to hear this. Keep pressing the law. Keep going with the law. Keep going with sin. And so I just kept going. And, and at that moment, this I, I'll never forget it. This dirt devil, like this wind thing, comes through the village and starts blowing these leaves all over the place. And it just got really eerie at that moment. Like, what in the world is going on here? Well, immediately at that moment, the tribal chief stood up and, and he said, I don't think he said time out because I don't do that in, in Asia. But he said, we've got to get back to work. Let's stop this. So the thing stopped, and so we had to leave the village. And as we're walking across the little mountain trail, I was really discouraged because I, I looked at my missionary friend, the translator, and I was like, I only got half of the message. I only talked about sin. I talked about the law. I talked about sh she was crushed under the law, and I never got to get to the gospel. I never got to get to the good news of how Jesus is the answer for her sin. And so I was discouraged because in that gospel presentation, I got halfway. She was under conviction, and maybe other people in the village were under conviction, but they did not get to hear the rest of the story. Which brings up a very important question. What is the role or the difference or the distinction between God's law the Ten Commandments, in God's gospel, the message of salvation. Last week, we talked about the importance of having two things in the life of our church and two things in your life as an individual Christian. We want to have sound doctrine, and we want to have sincere faith. 
We don't want to be either in the ditch of liberalism and we don't want to be the ditch of legalism. And so today we're going to look at two things as well, law and gospel and how we need to understand the distinctions between those two issues. And if you remember from last week, Paul says to Timothy, get busy. Get busy, I urge you and I charge you to address these false teachers. These, these false teachers, they were teaching myths and all types of weird teachings. They were, they were going off the rails. They were so dogmatic in their assertions. And, and really what Paul is saying is they did not understand the role of God's law and they did not understand the gospel. So, what is the distinction between God's law and God's gospel is there a distinction do they go together what's the order well we have it for us right here in first timothy so if you've got your bible let's just pick up where we were last week we're going to pick up in chapter 1 verse 8 and we're just going to read verses 8 through 11 and i pray as i read this and preach this that we do not get turned off on our social media accounts and you'll find out in just a moment why as we read the scripture, because we're streaming on Facebook and on YouTube. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now here's the question, or here's the main point, or the big idea from this passage of Scripture that we need to understand this morning, and it's simply this. We need a proper understanding of the difference between the law and the gospel. What's the difference between the law and the gospel? Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, there's no point upon which men make a greater mistake than upon the relation which exists between the law and the gospel. If you get the law and the gospel messed up, mixed up, twisted, distorted, you're going to mess up the message of Christianity. So there's these two big categories that the Bible speaks about. There's God's law and there's God's gospel. What is the difference between those two things? They really serve as a template for us to understand God's plan of salvation. So as we dive into this text this morning, I want us to see three main characteristics that show us the relationship between God's law and God's gospel. So here's the first. First, we must understand the proper use of God's law. The proper use of God's law. Notice how Paul starts verse 8. Now we know... That the law is good. Paul makes the assumption that we just know this. The early church would have known that the law is good. 
Now, there are some Christians today that say there's no room for the law. That's Old Testament. That's Old Covenant. We don't need to worry about the law anymore. And Paul says, no, the law is good. But the problem is not the law. The law is good. The problem is our sin. Romans 7.12 says this, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. God's law is good. The Ten Commandments are good. They are righteous. They are holy. They reveal to us God's standard, God's morality. But what Paul is addressing here is the improper use of God's law. Paul says the law is good if one uses it lawfully or appropriately or correctly. So what does this mean? How do the Ten Commandments or God's moral law, how do we use these correctly? Well, historically, Christians have understood three ways to use or three ways to understand God's law. These are called the three uses of the law. What is the role of the Ten Commandments in God's plan? So the three uses of the law. Let's, let's talk about that. Here's use number one. And this was what was talked about earlier when Pastor Dustin did our time of confession. Use one is to expose our sins and crush us in despair for breaking God's law. That's use number one. One of the primary goals of the Ten Commandments is to kick you to the curb, if you will, to, to slay you in the dust, to, to humiliate you, to level you, to crush you, to show you that in no way can you keep God's perfect standard. It's to make you hopeless before a holy God. Now, the first use of the law is for non-Christians. It is for non-Christians. It is geared towards the non-believer to show the non-believer his or her inability to keep God's law perfectly. We must keep God's law perfectly, perpetually, and personally. And if we can't do that because it's impossible, then we are toast. And that's the purpose. The, purpose of, the first purpose or use of the law is to show us how utterly incapable we are of reaching this standard and of knowing what sin is in our lives. Romans 3.20 For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The Ten Commandments, the law gives knowledge of sin. It lets you know you're a sinner. You've personally sinned against a holy God. It gives names and titles to sin, so that it's not just generic sin out there. Paul mentions this in Romans 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. So the law shows us that we've broken God's commandments. Martin Luther says it this way. Martin Luther's kind of graphic in his language sometimes, the word pictures. He says this, God uses the law as a hammer to break up the illusion of self-righteousness that we should despair of our own strength and efforts at self-justification. The law shows our sin so that we may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken, and by this may be driven to seek comfort and so to come to Jesus. The law is a hammer. 
that's supposed to shatter us to pieces and show us that we need Jesus. We are sinners. We are condemned. We are dead in our trespasses. We can't, we can't live up to this law. It's a hammer that shatters us. James 2, 10-11 says this, For whoever keeps the whole law, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, so like you keep 99% of it but that 1% you don't keep, you're guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but murder, you become a transgressor of the law. Listen to what Spurgeon says. Again, only the way Spurgeon could say it. Okay, here we go. The heart is like a dark cellar, basement, full of lizards, cockroaches, beetles, and all kinds of reptiles and insects, which in the dark we don't see. But the law takes down the shutters and lets in the light so that we see the evil. Anybody have a reptilian heart that you can't see? The law comes in like a flashlight or opens the shutters and says, Ooh, what's been creeping and crawling in there? That's what the law does. The Ten Commandments come to us and expose us, convict us, leave us in the dust. Now there's an old Scottish pastor back in the 1700s named John Colquhoun. And he said this, he says the purpose or the first use of the law is this, he says to tear away every pillow of man-made security on which they sleep and to show them the vanity of every false refuge. Okay, picture yourself sleeping on a pillow. Really nice. You're really sleepy. And somebody comes and pulls the pillow out from under you. What are you going to do? Why did you pull the pillow out? That's startling. I'm I'm sleeping. He says, here's the purpose of the law. You're sleeping on your self-righteousness. You're sleeping on your sin. You're sleeping on all this stuff that doesn't satisfy. And the law is like somebody coming and ripping that out from behind you to show you that, ooh, I'm resting on the wrong thing. I'm not resting on Jesus. I'm resting on myself. So the first use of the law is for non-Christians to see their absolute guilt before a holy God and to be crushed in despair so that they come to Christ for the answer, for salvation. So that's the first use of the law. The second use, number two, talking about the Ten Commandments here, is a moral standard to govern civil society. Now, this can be something that people debate about, but all people, regardless if you're a Christian or not, you are created in the image of God, and God has established His moral principles to govern society so that there's not chaos. That's why in the old days you'd have the Ten Commandments put up in courthouses and places like that. It's a way to curb anarchy in society so that people aren't doing crazy things to one another. It's just a way to restrain chaos in a godless, lawless society. And we live in a lawless society. What's the greatest good that people say in our society? What's the greatest good? Self-expression at my own my own freedom and self-expression to to be whatever I want, regardless of the consequences. So the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments, is a prophetic voice that speaks into culture and says, you're going off the rails, culture. You need to be reeled back, and God's got a standard. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. 
So use number one for non-believers to be crushed. Use number two as a guide for cultures, for civilizations to live moral lives. And then number three, we could spend a whole other sermon on this, but use number three is the laws given to believers as a guide for holiness. Now, the law does not go away once you become a Christian. The law is still there. You don't ever follow it in order to be in a right relationship with God, but now you've been given the Holy Spirit to live inside of you, and so the law becomes a rule or a guide for living your life in holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit in you. Now, Paul here says, because those are the three uses of the law that you look throughout the Scriptures, number one, to bring conviction of sin, number two, to be a restraining force on society, and number three, for Christians to live a moral, holy life. What does Paul say here? Verse eight, the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Okay, so what are some inappropriate uses of God's law? What are some inappropriate or unhealthy or unwise or untrue ways you would use God's law? Now remember who's Paul talking to. Go back up to verse 7, <clears throat> the verse right before this. Actually, verse 6. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law. Desiring to be teachers of the law, these false teachers, without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they're making confident assertions. Now, if you read the rest of 1 Timothy and you read 2 Timothy, you find out that these false teachers are, are going in two different directions. One is legalism, bringing all these man-made rules into bear to somehow be right with God. The other one is what we would call license or do whatever you want because after all, I'm saved, I can live however I want. So these men, these false teachers, are leading people away with distortions of God's law. And basically, it was giving them a false sense of security. If you go into legalism, you're basically telling people, you have to do something extra besides Jesus in order to be in God's good graces. That's a distortion. License or live however you want tells people, you can just pretty much do whatever you want. There's no such thing as holiness. There's no such thing as repentance. You can live however you want. There's no God's standard. So, before you give the good news of the gospel... People need to hear the bad news of the law. The law exposes. The law convicts. The law brings knowledge of sin. The law is used to confront the ills in culture. So that's the first thing we see here in this passage of Scripture is the proper use of God's law, using it lawfully. Those three uses to expose sin and non-believers to be a guide for culture so there's not anarchy, and also for believers through the power of the Holy Spirit to live the Christian life. Now, what Paul's going to do here is he's going to use the first and second uses of the law to show how these false teachers and thus sinners have broken God's law. So here's the second thing we see in this passage of Scripture. We must understand the specific violations of God's law. The violations. William Barclay writes this, Wretched theology typically leads to wretched living. Likewise, wretched living often leads people to wretched theological conclusions. Let no one say that theology doesn't matter. Theology is for living. 
If you have wretched theology, you're going to have wretched living. If you have wretched living, you're going to have wretched theology. You get things wrong theologically, it's going to affect how you live. If you live sinfully, it's going to affect your theology. And so what Paul's doing here is he's going to give specific issues related to a violation of God's law. And so Paul uses three pairs of words there in verse 9 to describe these teachers of the law, these false teachers, and by implication, all sinners who are without Christ. He says, verse 9, Understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. That's the first pair. Lawless and disobedient. Unsubordinate. Those that reject God's authority. Second, the ungodly and the sinners. Now, what I want to show you is that Paul is going to begin here to go through the Ten Commandments. Okay, let's just do a little review. What's the first commandment? It's an easy one. You shall have no other gods before me. Okay, what does Paul call these people? Ungodly. Ungodly. In other words, they aren't worshiping God. The first commandment. Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. What did Paul describe us as unbelievers before we were saved? Romans 5, 5, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So the ungodly person is a person who breaks the first commandment. They don't worship God, the one true God. Okay, let's, let's, let's look at what else he says. He says, for sinners... Oftentimes when Paul would use the word sinners, he was referring to Gentiles who were steeped in pagan idolatry. What's the second commandment? Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's on the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for the Lord your God. I am a jealous God. Idolatry. The first commandment is worshiping the right God. The second commandment is worshiping other things that aren't God. Okay, notice what else he says there. The third pairing of words. He calls them unholy and profane. Unholy. We think about the third commandment. What's the third commandment? Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not take the name of your Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Leviticus 19.12, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. What do we do when we, when we pray the Lord's Prayer in Matthew? How do we start the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6.9? Jesus says, pray like this, our Father in heaven, what? Hallowed or holy be your name. These men are unholy. So they're breaking the first commandment. They're breaking the second commandment. They're breaking the third commandment. Okay, what's the fourth commandment? Well, verse, uh, Exodus 20, verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What are they described here? They're described as those who are profane. Oftentimes it's talked about profaning the Sabbath, not worshiping God on the Sabbath. So what Paul does in describing these men is basically saying, these guys are breaking the first four of the commandments. And the first four of the Ten Commandments are Godward oriented. It's how you relate to God. Now the second half of the Ten Commandments, 
Commandments 5 through 10, those are others-oriented. Okay, so the Ten Commandments are subbed up in, do you love God vertically? Do you love your neighbor horizontally? And they're breaking every single one of these. And now he's going to get specific into the second table of the law. Okay, what's the fifth commandment? You shall honor your father and mother, right? Well, what does he say there? For those who strike their fathers and mothers. Exodus 21, 15. Whoever strikes his father or mother shall be put to death. Okay, aren't you glad, boys and girls, you didn't live back in the Old Testament? You get mad and hit your mom and dad, they'd put you out back and they'd stone you to death. Okay. Now, Paul is being pretty radical here. He's not just saying, hey, these are basic violations of the Ten Commandments. He's getting pretty radical. It's not just, I'm disobeying my parents. It's like, no, I'm hitting my parents. I'm striking my parents. He's, getting, he's going over the top to show that the level of how you can break the Ten Commandments. So, now he gets to the Seventh Commandment. I'm sorry, the Sixth Commandment. What's the Sixth Commandment? Murder. So, Fifth Commandment, those who strike their fathers and mothers... For murderers, there at the end of verse 9, that is the sixth commandment. All right, what's the, what's the seventh commandment? You shall not commit adultery. Now notice Paul doesn't list adultery here. What does he list? He lists two sins. Verse 10, the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. Okay, let's talk about sexually immoral here for just a moment. It's the Greek word porneia or pornos. So we get the word pornography or porn. Let me just be very clear with what this word means. This word is a biblical word that means any sexual relation with somebody who's not your covenant spouse. That you're not in a legally binding married relationship. Sleeping with your boyfriend, sleeping with your girlfriend, sex before marriage, sex, any type of sexual activity with someone who's not your covenant spouse. Ephesians 5.5, 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now, Paul doesn't just stop there with heterosexual sexual immorality. Paul says, for those who practice homosexuality. Now, I'm going to be, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, ugh. let me just tell you what the word in Greek means just so there's no confusion. It's a compound word of two words. It means man coitus. Men who share a bed sexually with one another. And it's consensual sex between two males. In that culture, there was something called pederasty, which was a master-slave relationship where an older male could basically get a younger boy to have relationships with him. That's not what Paul's talking about here because there's another Greek word for that. This is consensual sex between two people of the same sex. And so there's not just gay sin, but there's also the issue of lesbianism as well. Okay, I know I'm being pretty... I don't know what the word is. I'm just laying it down the way the Bible teaches. So Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations 
for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Okay, I don't have time to go into this. It's a whole separate section sermon. But same-sex attraction, same-sex action, any type of homosexual orientation, action is considered unnatural, is considered sinful, is considered an abomination before God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now I want you to pay attention to verse 11. And that and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All those sins listed, Paul says that's what you were. Those don't define you anymore. You've come out of that. You've repented. You're a new creation in Christ. So the Bible is very clear that these sexual sins don't define you. If you're a believer, that's what you were. You're now a new creation in Christ. Now let's keep going down the list. What's the next thing he says on here? Enslavers or kidnappers. Now this is in reference to the Eighth Commandment. What's the Eighth Commandment? You shall not steal. Steal other people. Exodus 21, 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Kidnapping, stealing, enslaving. Okay, what's the ninth commandment? You shall not bear false witness. What are the last two on the list? Liars and perjurers. Now, here's a question that commentators have not been able to answer, and I don't have an answer for it. Why doesn't Paul give the tenth commandment? Covening. You know what the answer is? I don't know. We'll find out when we get to heaven. Don't ask me. I don't know. But notice how Paul gives a catch-all there at the end. He says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. The word sound, we'll find that all throughout First and Second Timothy as we keep coming to it. It's a medical term. It means healthy, life-giving. Notice the importance of sound doctrine that we talked about last week. So Paul is saying violations of the Ten Commandments are contrary to sound doctrine. So let me just say it this way. If there's any church or any Christian that gives permission to break one of the Ten Commandments and says it's, it's good, they're violating sound doctrine. It's not sound doctrine to permit the breaking of the Ten Commandments. So what we need is sound, life-giving, healthy doctrine. These false teachers are given just the opposite. They're giving destroying, destructive, poisonous doctrine that destroyed the church. So here's what these teachers should have been doing. They were not using the law lawfully. Here's what they should have been doing. Instead of leading people astray, they should have been pointing people to the law to show them, like Paul does, you're lawbreakers especially Gentiles in Ephesus. You're lawbreakers. 
You've broken God's law, and therefore you need to understand this, and then you need Jesus. But they're not doing that. They're using it unlawfully. They're basically doing half their job. Kind of like when I was in South Asia and I only got halfway through. They're they're not showing them the, the proper use of the law. So here's the thing. If you only give somebody the law, you're only going halfway. And it's not really good news. It's actually bad news. And it's supposed to be. But then you have to come in after the law and you've got to give the gospel. So here's the third thing we see in this passage of Scripture. Third, the gospel only makes sense when you've been condemned by the law. It only makes sense. See, the law condemns, the law convicts, the law warns, the law exposes, the law crushes. It levels you to the dust. It does not save, it does not transform, it does nothing but convict you. But what does the gospel do? The gospel is good news that transforms, it forgives, it gives life, it changes, it cleanses, it frees. And what is the gospel? So notice what Paul says here. Paul's gone through the law. Okay, you're using the law lawfully. And then he lists the Ten Commandments there in graphic detail. But then notice what he says here in verse 11. In accordance with the gospel, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. And as we'll see next week, Paul goes into great detail of how that gospel saved him. So what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's the promise of forgiveness of sins of all who place their faith in Christ alone. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4 For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The law gives demands. The gospel announces news. Let me, let me give you just a very easy way to remember law and gospel. Two words that start with D. Okay? The law says do. You've got to do all these things. The gospel says done. It's already been done by Jesus. He's done it all. The law can never save. The law can never forgive. The law can never cleanse. All the law does is it drives you to your knees to show you that you need a Savior. But it never, ever has the power to save you. Now notice how Paul describes this gospel. He calls it the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. The glory of God is expressed in the gospel. The the full measure of God's splendor and majesty and authority and power. Where's the gospel most clearly on display? Where's God's glory most clearly on display? In Jesus 2 Corinthians 4, 4 4-6, Paul says, In their case, the God of this world, that's Satan. He's blinded the minds of unbelievers. Okay, so what's Satan doing in the minds of unbelievers? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge, of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Unbelievers can't see the glory of God in Christ. When the law comes to you, it exposes your sin, 
and the Holy Spirit opens your eyes, and for the very first time when you're regenerated, when you're born again, you see the glory of God in Christ in the gospel. Where's the full glory of God most clearly displayed? In the death of Jesus, in Christ, when he died on that cross taking our sin. And then notice what else Paul calls it. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Why does he say blessed God? What what does it mean that God is blessed? It's kind of a hard concept for us to think about. What it means is this. God is fully satisfied in God. God has no needs. God has no wants. God is fully blessed and happy and joyous in himself. But here's the beauty. He chooses to share that blessing with us in Christ. He shares that blessing. The blessed God shares that blessing with us. Ephesians 1.3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The gospel of the glory of the blessed God. God's glory, God's blessing, all in Christ. So we don't ever want to confuse law and gospel. We don't ever want to confuse do and done. Theodore Beza said this, We can say that ignorance of the distinction between law and gospel is one of the principal sources of the abuses which has corrupted and still corrupts Christianity. The law of God reveals God's righteous demands that we could never meet. We're crushed. We're convicted. We're killed. We're guilty. The gospel reveals God's grace we could never earn and we don't deserve. We're saved. We're forgiven. We're accepted. We're adopted into God's family. See, here's the danger of not preaching or emphasizing either one. If you don't have these two together, you're going to have a lot of problems. If you only preach the law and no gospel, what does it lead to? It leads to despair. It leads to hopelessness. And then it leads to moralism or legalism, thinking that somehow I've got to do something to fix it. If all you preach is the law and tell people how sinful they are, they're going to go away crushed, which is what they're supposed to go away. And, but then they're going to figure out, well, then what's the answer? I've got to do something, so what do I need to do to fix it? Morality, legalism, despair, hopelessness. I've got to get on the treadmill to try to earn it. If all you preach is the law and no gospel, then you are leading people into a crushed sense of their guilt. But if you only preach the gospel with no law, It makes people wonder, well, why do I need the gospel in the first place? Aren't I already good? The good news doesn't make much sense if you haven't given them the bad news. If they don't understand that they are guilty and they deserve God's wrath and that they're condemned, then the good news is not going to be that good to them. It's going to be mean like coming up to you and saying, hey, I've got the cure for cancer. And you're like, that's great, but I don't have cancer. Go give it to somebody else. You see, the gospel only makes sense when it's followed by the law. So we need to be faithful in making sure that we teach both law and gospel, not leaving either one of them out. But here's the beauty. Let's make this real this morning. Here's the beauty of knowing the difference between law and gospel. There is no sin that is so terrible that Jesus can't forgive you. 
If you've flagrantly broken every single one of the Ten Commandments or even those that are on this list here, there is hope for you today to be forgiven by Christ alone. And let me take it a step further. Jesus is the only one who's ever kept the law. He kept the law perfectly in thought, word, and deed. He kept all the Ten Commandments perfectly. We never could. And the moment that you trust in Jesus for salvation, not only are your sins forgiven of all those sins that you have committed, that you've broken, but His righteousness is given to you, and God looks at you as if you lived the life that Jesus lived, and you perfectly kept every one of those laws. He gives it to you as a free gift of grace because He kept the law. God can look down upon you because of Christ and declare you not guilty. So if you are here today and you've been crushed by the depth of the law, it's come into your conscience, it's come into your heart, you know that you're a sinner, you've been leveled in the dust this morning, you've been convicted, I've got great news for you. The gospel says you can be freed from that, you can be forgiven from that, you can be saved. If you receive Jesus today, you will receive absolute forgiveness of all those sins. So don't don't try hard to get better. Don't make a resolution to be a better person. You can't do enough. You can't be spiritual enough. You can't be holy enough. You can't do anything. Spurgeon would say this, fall into the arms of saving grace. What do you do when you fall into someone's arms? Are you doing anything? No, you're totally relying upon the other person to catch you. You're not working. You're not doing. You're just receiving Jesus. Fall into the arms of saving grace. Because on that cross, Jesus cried out, It is finished. He paid for all of our sins. See, here's what we need to understand about law and gospel. We are far more sinful than we could ever imagine. But we also need to understand God is far more merciful than we could ever imagine because of the gospel. The law kills The gospel gives life. The law convicts. Jesus forgives. If you're here today and you've been convicted by God's law, would you fall into the arms of your Savior and receive that mercy and grace alone that can forgive all of your sins, past, present, and future, and give you the hope of eternal life? Would you fall into the arms of saving grace this morning. Let me ask you to bow your heads as we go before the Lord. you have your heads bowed there there may be a temptation for you to say you know what this message is for other people not for me because I'm already saved but I just remind you dear Christian that the gospel's for you also 
that we need to hear this over and over again because we tend to get guilty and we tend to get legalistic and we need to hear the announcement of God's love for us in Christ. So as you're praying, don't, don't think this is for somebody else. Think, think about how God has met you at your point of sin and given you grace upon grace and just use this as an opportunity to be thankful for His sovereign love for you. So we'll just, just spend a few more moments in prayer this morning and then I'll close this. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God of grace and holiness, that you have given us your law, and your law is perfect. Your law is inflexible. Your law is your standard of perfection that you have revealed to us that shows us what your moral character and your requirements are. And we know we could never live up to those, no matter how hard we try. All that the law does is show us our need for a Savior who kept the law and who saved us from the penalty of that law. So Jesus, thank you that you have died on the cross. You have risen again. You lived the life that we can never live. You died the death we deserve to die. And by grace alone, through faith alone, and you alone, Jesus, we can have the assurance that our sins are forgiven, the righteousness of Christ, and have the hope of eternal life. Lord, in our individual lives, as we share the gospel with our friends and family and people, help us to always get the distinction between law and gospel. Lord, help us to understand why it's so important that we talk about the law. But Lord, help us not just leave people there, but help them to give them the gospel. And Lord, help us not just to give people the hope of the gospel without telling them the bad news of the law. Help us to have that balance between law and gospel. Help us to use the law lawfully and help us always to understand the gospel of the glory of our blessed God. Thank you for blessing us with every spiritual blessing. Thank you for shining your glory through the cross and through the gospel and help us to be a people that believe these truths deep in our hearts to give us the assurance, the hope, the confidence to walk out of this place knowing our sins have been forgiven and we can go live in the freedom of who we are following you because you have saved us by grace. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen and amen. If you are here this morning and you have come under conviction or you want to talk to somebody,